This particular World War II veteran flew combat missions in a B-29 Super Fortress over Japan during World War II. And his stories are, are harrowing. They're extremely interesting to listen to. I got to tell you, uh, he flew a combat mission over Nagasaki a day after the atomic bomb was dropped on it and then made it back home in one piece. I can't tell you how humbled and honored and super stoked I am to have Mr. Kenneth Bender, on this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio. And I really appreciate those of you who are continuing to tune into our radio show and to listen to the stories of our men and women who didn't shirk their duty when it came time to support and to defend America. Thanks for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. World War II veteran. We don't find very many of those these days, ladies and gentlemen. This is a man who is celebrating his 95th year on the planet. He is from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, right along the Mississippi. He's been there all of his life. He grew up in the Depression. He learned some very important values about America as he grew up. Very interesting fellow, Mr. Kenneth Bender, is going to tell us about his life before he made it to the Army Air Corps. And what he did when he was in the service, what led up to that, and then what he did when he got home. But here we have a man that remembers very well the President of the United States, President Roosevelt, who addressed our nation after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. He remembers it vividly. It still sticks out in his mind. He was a senior in high school when he went into the military. 
He actually skipped school, of course, with the principal's approval to run down and to talk to the recruiters to find out how he could serve his country, United States of America. And what he did is he went into the Army Air Corps Reserves initially and did some serious training as a central fire control gunner on a B-29 Super Fortress. That's a huge plane. We're going to learn more about that. He trained all roles within the plane. I know they started out on B-17s because I think there weren't enough B-29s available. But what's interesting about Kenneth Bender is that he is the father of a woman, Becky, who has been married to my cousin for several decades. And I never even knew that her dad had even served in the military until just recently. So when I had heard that her dad had did the things that he did, I was super excited to find out that I could get him on the radio show because, you know, Ken and I were were smoking and joking and we were saying how there's not very many of them still left, World War II veterans, that is. So I'm very humbled and I'm very honored to have Mr. Kenneth Bender here on Straight Outta Combat Radio. Welcome, sir. Glad to be here. And we are too. And, and you know, we, we talked a little bit about your background, but Mr. Bender, explain to us a little bit about growing up in the Depression and what it was like and how that solidified the way you think about things. Well, when uh, I was eight years old, my dad lost his job, didn't have a permanent job for about three years. And uh, that really cut into the family's way of life. He had had a pretty good job, and uh, because of that, he had a yard man who worked at the house, and my mother had a lady who worked in the house, and uh, all of a sudden, they couldn't afford anything. And uh, the, uh, the period of time took to uh, run out of money was so, so short that uh, it just uh, apparently whopped my parents right in the face. I was just eight years old and really didn't follow it that carefully. I had three older siblings. My oldest sister was nine years older than I was. I was eight. She was 17. That makes a big difference. And uh, the, the whole family, probably with, my, with the exception of me, were well aware of the hardships that were taking place. I just ran around and played, went to school. All, most of the kids that I knew were poor too. Everybody was really having a rough time during the depression for spending money. I did little jobs, I sold magazines, then I got a paper route, then I set pins in bowling alley, then I worked in a hardware store. Finally, I, as a matter of fact, I was still working at the hardware store when I was called into the service. I graduated from high school in the spring of 1943 and started college during a summer semester right away so that I could get a little time in before I actually went into the service. I got in three semesters, which were probably the equivalent of a full year before I was called active duty. During that time, the school, of course, all the young men were being called into service and the enrollment was falling and the school came into a program 
with the Navy V-12, and the Navy moved on to campus. All the dormitories were cleaned out of kids, and the Navy took over and filled the classrooms. I was still there for uh, a full semester after they arrived, and uh, it was fun and interesting. I uh, got to know some of the Navy cadets who were stationed there. They changed the names of everything. The dormitories were called ships. The floors in the classrooms were called decks, and all these things took place, and they marched up and down the football field and on the city streets in their training. As they finished their period there, then they went into an actual naval base. Well, that was real interesting because I hadn't had any touch of being in service yet at that time. When I actually was called in, they had lowered the uh, time involved for uh, a basic training down to one month. So we were supposed to become soldiers in 30 days. Hmm. We did a lot of marching and parades and calisthenics and KP and so forth. And it wasn't uh, too long until we really began to feel like soldiers because we had each barracks uh, held uh, 96 men, uh, two floors, and we had one sergeant who had been in the service for a long time, who was, uh, they called him CQ, Charge of Quarters. And uh, it was up to him to see to it that we were all where we were supposed to be when, when we were there. He marched us to the mess hall. He marched us to the parade ground. He uh, took us on 10-mile hikes. And he uh, raised cane if the barracks wasn't perfect because various times an officer from somewhere else would come in and inspect and if things weren't just right, he'd be in trouble. So within 30 days, we felt like we were soldiers. I had gone in thinking I was going to be a fighter pilot, but of course, by the time that I got there, it was 1944, and they had more than enough pilots, and they lined us up all, all on the parade ground one morning and said, for the convenience of the government, you've been... Uh, removed from pilot training status to uh, various other training groups. So then we had to take a bunch of tests. And I remember a friend of mine that, who had actually gone in with me and we were in the same barracks. And he uh, just zeroed in on the radio operator. He could take Morse code uh, in no time. He could sit there and click the thing back and forth and he was good at it and I couldn't do a bit of it. So I knew I, was, I, knew I wasn't going to pass that. Let's back up a second, you know, because we had mentioned the attack on Pearl Harbor and, you know, you're talking about 1943-44. America's already a couple of years into the war. That's what propelled United States of America was Pearl Harbor. And you remember that in high school you were in. Yeah, I was just a sophomore when that happened. You know, what was the feeling for your community? Can you remember, what was the feeling like when that happened, when you all heard that they had attacked us in Pearl Harbor? 
there was uh, the general feeling was really uh, bad at the Japanese. They were the enemy. We were all against the Japanese. We didn't want anything to do with them except to fight them and try and kill them. The whole population, I don't know of anybody who wasn't uh, really mad that they had done this to us, that they had attacked our naval base. And everybody, adults and kids alike, were uh, kids, of course, I guess, got their attitudes from the adults. And uh, we, we were all gung-ho into the war effort. I was still a Boy Scout at the time. We had scrap paper drives. People would bundle up newspapers and put them on the curb on Saturday morning. And uh, the lumber yard would loan us a truck and a driver. And Boy Scouts would pick these uh, bundles up and load them on a truck. And they'd be taken to a central collection point and shipped away. Then uh, shortly after paper drives came uh, scrap metal drives and women would set out old battered pots and pans and all sorts of things. Men would put out uh, worn out lawnmowers and anything that they thought could be used in the war effort. And, uh, and I think it was, I think those things were melted down and, and actually used. And everybody that I know was strongly behind the war effort. We very quickly ran into rationing. There must have been people ahead of time making plans, knowing that we would eventually wind up in the war. Europe had been in the war since 1939, and we didn't get in until the end of 1941. And uh, I've read uh, books by both General MacArthur and... Uh, General Eisenhower, and during the uh, 1930s, during the 20s and 30s, they were both career military men, and their jobs was to plan were to plan for the next war, and they had laid all this out down to the very uh, little bit of what the civilians would have to do, and uh, so we did it. The rationing, my mother went uh, on a certain day to uh, the courthouse and stood in a long line and got rationed. She had to take along our birth certificates to show how many were in her family, and she got ration coupons based on that. See, there were coupons for coffee, there were coupons for sugar, for flour, for meat, for almost anything you could think of. At a, under, in a separate way, my dad had to get uh, ration coupons for gasoline and tires. During the Depression, we'd always run the tires on the car as long as they'd go. Yeah. And so we, we didn't have a car with new tires on it. And uh, you had to, uh, if you needed a tire, you had to prove it and uh, go to a certain place and get one. Gosh, I remember the first one we got must have had a break in it because it had a knot on the top and you drive along and it go clunk, clunk, clunk. <laughs> and it finally blew out and it had cost $2. It was a used tire. 
and we finally got another used tire that was a little better. And the gas was rationed. Dad got three gallons a week. That didn't go very far. We walked or rode bicycles most anywhere we could. Even grown-ups rode bicycles. So it was a sacrifice that the whole, from the family to the community to everywhere, the whole nation was was pulling together and giving up a lot so that we could have this great war effort. Is that Would that be characterizing it the right way? Exactly right. Yes, absolutely. And I've thought many times since then that might have been one of the mistakes of the uh, government during the uh, Vietnam War. I remember President Johnson at the time saying, we can have both guns and butter and that the home front won't suffer. And we didn't. And uh, we, the home front didn't sacrifice anything during the Vietnam War like they did during the World War II. Consequently, the people weren't really behind that effort. And when the soldiers came home from there, they, there was no celebration, nothing carrying on. And I think that might have been a big mistake of the government not to let the uh, country, the civilian population, feel like they were a part of the war effort. Yeah, it's, it might be so. You know, that might be the reason, because you're totally right. The Vietnam veterans that I've talked to did not receive a great homecoming like a lot of the World War II veterans did. And, you know, you might be right about that. So so you're in training, you're with 96 men in the dormitories, and you guys are you're marching around, you're learning how to be soldiers. And then, you know, you're going through your training. Tell me a little bit about, because I understand that you were able to do something that actually helped the mission, you know, so that the fire didn't, didn't, it was so friendly fire didn't bring down our airplanes. Is, is that correct as a central fire control gunner? Did you guys come up with some kind of device that helped? Yes, we did. Uh, your viewers won't be able to see it, but I could show it to you. It, I sent it home in a cigar box. It's still in the same cigar box. I mailed it home, and we made three. Actually, what? Let me back up a little bit. Okay. We, uh, I spent about six months at uh, in Denver, Colorado, at Lowry Field, studying uh, this remote control system. All the guns on the B twenty nine were fired by remote control. That was the first warplane that actually fired by remote control. And um, here this thing is in the cigar box. It wasn't very big, but, well, this is a dead man switch. Okay. Each gunner had one of those in the palm of his hand. Right. Yeah, if he was killed and fell away from his gun, this popped open. Okay, I can see that, yep. Here, when that happened, the guns automatically switched from the control of his gun sight. He didn't sit in his turret. He sat in a blister where his gun sight was. Gunner sat and looked through one of these things. He, he sighted through this mirror. He controlled what was happening by turning these switches. Here you can see the dead man switch. Right. These were Selsun units which actually read what was happening 
up here. It's what the gunner was doing. Okay. That was fed into a primitive computer system that uh, was really a very mechanical computer. And it each one of these things was turned into an electrical signal at each movement that he made. These electrical signals were set, went into the computer and sent on to the gun turret. And if, if the uh, gunner was pressing his trigger, which was, uh, I don't know if you can see it right here or not, mm -hmm. his thumb would rest on the trigger and his hand would be around this uh, control circle. If he was pressing his trigger, when another gunner was killed, the other gunner's guns would immediately go and shoot at the same target as the guy who was still alive pressing his triggers. Right. So you had an extra set of guns, an extra turret aiming at that uh, particular target. Well, what happened was we had neared the end of our training as a flight crew and close to time to go overseas. And we were actually replacement crews. We, we group that we were going to fly with was already overseas and we were being replacements for crews that had been shot down. And so, uh, we were near the end of our training and one of the last missions was a sort of a contest set up by the commanding officer of the base and the winner, the person, the crew that could finish all of their training missions first would get to fly a B-17 from Clovis, New Mexico, where we were training to Chicago and have a three-day pass in Chicago <laughs> go out on the town and come back. And that was the reward for being first. We were tied for first with the crew on which my the, the fellow who was my bunkmate when we were in training at Lowry Field, learning how to operate this electrical system of controlling the guns. And he had been, he and I had been bunkmates and his crew and my crew were tied for first place. We had a briefing about two o'clock in the morning and rushed out to our planes, each one trying to be first. And uh, we got to our plane, started, tried to start the engines and one wouldn't start. Hmm. And had to be towed back to the hangar. Our friends took off ahead of us. Our plane was in the shop all day and we didn't even get to fly that last mission. But as a consolation prize, they gave us a three-day pass to go anywhere we could get to on our own at our own expense. So a group of us on our plane got together and we took a bus to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was the closest big city. We got rooms in a hotel, Franciscan Hotel, I never will forget. We uh, went up to our rooms, we cleaned up, we put on our best uniforms, and we were going to meet in the lobby and go out on the town. We got down in the lobby all about the same time, and we're just getting ready to go out, and here came the other crew who had won first place, walking into the same hotel we were in. 
Well, what happened? Why aren't you in Chicago? Well, as it turned out, this last mission was air-to-ground gunnery. And the planes were flying close to the ground, shooting at mock-ups that were on the desert in New Mexico, really just canvas mock-ups of Japanese planes sitting on the ground. As they were flying over these uh, mock-ups on the ground and the shooting, one of the bombardier was the, also a gunner in the nose of the plane. And they weren't uh, really as trained as gunners, but they had to fill in. One of these bombardiers, when he couldn't see a target anymore, he just took his hand off of the dead man switch. That caused his turret to turn around and fire at the same target as the, his secondary control was. And his guns kept shooting all the while that they swung around from firing forward through about a 90 degree arc to firing to the left side. As they were shooting through this space, they shot down another plane that was flying side of them on the same mission. The bombardier was, of course, entirely at fault. He had been told, don't turn loose of that dead man switch or these guns will shoot, likely shoot down somebody else in formation. But he made a mistake. Plane crashed in the desert. They were close to the ground and were lucky. They crashed into the sand. The plane was torn up, but only one person was injured and he had a broken leg and the rest of them all escaped. But that ended the contest that everybody went back to base. And these guys who would have, would have been winners were given a three-day pass, the same as we had. Well, my buddy that had been bunkmate in Denver, he and I talked about this. And we said, you know, we ought to be able to figure out a way to keep this from happening. So we told our pilots, and they told their supervisors, and the word got up to the commanding officer and he gave orders, give these two boys whatever they need, give them a room to work in and a hangar, all the supplies they want, all the parts and pieces and let them see what they can do. We worked for about a week, tried several different things and finally came up with this little thing, which we made three Three units Needless to say, that uh, that enabled the missions to be complete without shooting down any any of our friendly airplanes. That's right. That was the purpose, and it was very simple. This is called a neon glow tube. When it reached when twenty seven volts, it has neon gas in it, just like a neon light down on Broadway. But it has it's separated by two signals and the tube is filled with gas, neon gas. It takes 27 volts of electricity to get that gas hot enough to carry electricity from one side of the tube to the other. When that happens, we had it rigged so that it opened this relay. 
this relay was connected with all these wires, the firing circuit of the guns and the guns that were what we called slewing around from a different direction couldn't fire. The, their firing circuit was closed as soon as it reached 27 volts, which happened immediately because if the dead man switch was released, the guns were given the full power that the ship's generators could produce, which was between 27 and 29 volts. And that made them move as fast as they could, but they were firing all the time. Right. Well, we let them, as soon as they started moving, when we had this set so that if they moved as much as three degrees at full speed, it cut out the firing circuit. It hit this neon gas and shut everything down until they got within three degrees of where the other guns were shooting. And then they came on again. We made three units of this. We put it on a plane, tested it all out, and it worked. We said one, the best looking one to the uh, Air Force laboratories at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, uh, along with a letter from our commanding officer describing what it was all about. I brought, sent one home and my buddy sent one home. Those were the three. This is one that I sent home. That's remarkable. That's, that's absolutely outstanding work. You saved a lot of lives, I'm sure. Well, we think so. We hope so. The, the Air Force Laboratory in Dayton, Ohio approved it and ordered it immediately installed on all new B-29s as they were produced. In the meantime, we got sent overseas, and none of the planes that were there had this on it. <laughs> and they were all had all been there for a while. We took a brand new one over. And that's another story I'll tell in a minute. But I had been there for over a month before I saw the first plane that came into our squadron that had this device installed on it. And I felt so good about it. And I was keeping a little log of each mission that we flew. And I made notation in that log that I saw the first combat ready unit that had this installed. And I was very proud of it and uh, told everybody, I guess I bragged about it to everybody. But that was the story of that little gadget. Uh, it wasn't very sophisticated, it, but it worked and it was used all through the war. That's amazing how, how something so simple that nobody else really thought about how you guys came up with that. That That's pretty incredible. So not only, not only were you sacrificing your time and your body, but you're also, you know, putting together things that actually helped in a great deal, helped to complete all those missions. Who knows how many planes would have been shot down of our own planes by our, by our planes had that not been installed. It did happen. We found out later it had had happened in combat. And of course, we know that it happened in training because that's how we happened to get on to the idea. When we went overseas, his crew was sent to Saipan to replace one that had been shot down. My crew was sent to Guam. They were both in the Marianas Islands, but about 20 minutes apart in flying time. 
and we never saw each other again. Mm. And uh, I tried to contact him about three years ago. I got on the computer, which was the only way I knew. We had exchanged Christmas cards for a while after the war. And then that fell aside after we got married and life moved on. I tried contacting him over the computer and uh, word came back, try St. Peter's Cemetery. So I dropped it right there. So anyway, I wanted to back up. As we were getting ready to go overseas, we were sent to Harrington, Kansas, which was called a staging area. It's where we received a brand new B-29 to take overseas. We didn't know what day we were going to leave. We had to put all of our belongings on the plane. One of us stood guard over it all the time so that nobody got in and ransacked our stuff. And uh, we took turns. In the meantime, uh, we were there about four days. And during that time, every day, we'd have, uh, when we weren't called to take off and go overseas, we'd uh, have to go do training flights around Harrington. So the very first day that we were going to do a training flight, a plane took off ahead of us, and we were already rolling down the runway and going, getting it airborne, and this plane burst into flames and exploded and crashed. And about that time, I looked out of my blister and I saw gasoline streaming down the side of our plane. And we thought, my gosh, this is what happened to them. We immediately radioed back to the ground, circled. Uh, we were expecting to blow up at any minute. We didn't. We got back on the ground. We were followed by a whole fleet of fire engines that started fire, squirting foam on our plane when we came to a halt at the end of the runway, and we ran off as far away as we could get. And uh, it turned out that this whole series of planes had somebody had failed to connect the gas line between one of the wing tanks and the uh, main uh, central wing tank in the inside the plane. So, of course, all the planes were grounded. It didn't take long. They were all repaired, and we were back in the air. Flew to Hawaii, then on to Kwajalein and Wake Island, and finally to Guam. We got our orders uh, from island to island as we were in the air each time. We got to Guam. Uh, we had about a week of uh, ground schooling before we were assigned to a mission. During this time, one of the other crews who had been there for a while had their plane in the shop having a new engine put in it. They were assigned to fly our new plane. So they borrowed that. They were shot down over Tokyo, crashed in Tokyo Bay, all of them lost. Mm. The war came close to us very quickly at that. Uh, we uh, 
took uh, had to borrow a, an old plane that had been there a while for our first mission, and we flew what was called Tokyo Rose on its 13th mission. We uh, didn't have any problems because it was our first mission. We were the last to take off. We were on the taxi strip, which was side of the runway. We were at the back end of the taxi strip, which was the takeoff end of the runway. We saw planes as they left the ground. They were all heavily loaded and barely getting their wheels off of the ground before they uh, ran out of runway. Oh, maybe half through, but this was, we took off always in the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning, but it was about an eight hour flight from Guam to Japan. So we were there in good broad daylight for bombing. These planes each uh, were full throttle on takeoff and that made uh, flames uh, flying out through their tu turbo superchargers and it was easy to see them taking off and we were watching each one and uh, it was about a quarter of a mile between the end of the runway and the edge of the island. The, the runway had been built there on purpose because the, that particular edge of the island, there was a cliff that was about 500 feet tall. And when you got over that cliff, you were 500 feet in the air and you could lower down and pick up speed and get your engines revved up to cruising level and, and uh, climb back up to whatever altitude mission was assigned for. We were watching these planes would disappear over the edge of the cliff, and then we'd see them come up way off in the distance. While we were watching, one went over the edge of the cliff and crashed into the ocean and blew up and bombs and gasoline and lit up the whole area as broad as mm. daylight. They were all lost, and we kept taxiing up the taxi strip, and all of a sudden, our number three engine caught fire. The B-29 had a fire extinguisher in the nose wheel well, and it was piped to each engine. The flight engineer had control of valves that he immediately opened the valves on our number three engine, put the fire out. In the meantime, our pilot had shut the engine down. Our co-pilot had feathered the propeller and our pilot radioed the control tower and told him that we had a fire in the engine. We were aborting the mission and returning to our hard stand, which was our parking area. The control tower said, well, not yet. Stay in line on your three engines and till the colonel uh, gets over here and he'll give you orders of what to do. So we kept on chugging along and uh, 
the colonel came on the radio and he said, start that engine back up and see what happens. Well, it kind of shook us all. Uh, we started it back up and it didn't burn. It, and later on, we found out that it was oil that had been thrown out of the engine. Those right cyclones were prone to have oil leaks. And this one had a leak and oil had gotten on what a car would call the muffler. We called it the collector ring on our engine that got the fire from each cylinder. We flew that mission. On, uh, on the way, I, I told you we were what they call tail end Charlie. We were the last to take off. When we got over the edge of that cliff, oh, it was a good feeling. And uh, as we got in the air and were started towards Japan, uh, we, start, we saw a plane headed back towards Guam. And he had one engine out flying on three engines. Well, that didn't make us feel too good. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Pretty soon here came another one with an engine out. But those were the only two. They had engine trouble and went back. And we went on and flew the mission and had no trouble and got back safely. Probably our most scary one was one time when we were over Kyushu, Japan. We lost two of our engines. And uh, we flew back. We thought we were going to crash in the ocean. We radioed uh, Morse code uh, by with an encoded, encrypted message that what, what our problem was. And our base radioed back the same way for us to head for Iwo Jima. And they would send a submarine out and try and track our course and pick us up when we crashed in the ocean. We were not very happy about that. And our flight engineer budgeted the engines very carefully and saved each gallon of gas that he could. And we finally made it all the way to Iwo Jima. Uh, there was still a little fighting going on on one end of the island. And they sent up two P-51s to escort us into the airfield that we were to land at. We did, and uh, our plane was repaired, and we flew it back to Guam, and uh, uh, everything was all right. That's what you call a close call, right? Yeah, it felt close at the time. Well, man, I'm glad you guys made it, and certainly sorry about the the fellows that you guys lost on those other accidents. But we've often heard that you know war is hell, and you do what you got to do. I understand that you you were on one mission over a town that a lot of people know is called Nagasaki. Yes. You know, you want to share Kenneth a little bit about that mission? What you can tell us? Somewhere along the line, we became a reconnaissance crew. We quit dropping bombs. We didn't fly with our squadron. We flew all by ourselves, which was kind of scary too, because when you're up there by yourself, you don't have the protection of other planes shooting at fighters uh, at the same time you are. 
So we became a reconnaissance crew and we flew by ourselves to Japan and we'd fly back and forth mapping areas and taking pictures of areas of cities that had been bombed the day before, uh, see what damage had been done. We'd take pictures of uh, cities that were expected to be bombed in the future and we'd lay out the uh, areas of where the anti-aircraft guns were, the airfields were, where the factories were, and things of this sort. We'd fly across Japan, across the Inland Sea, across Korea, into China, and we'd pick up what now is called the jet stream. We didn't know what it was at that time. It was just a lot of wind. We'd fly into that, and we'd normally fly at about 270 miles an hour ground speed. And this would uh, knock that out, and uh, we got down to 200. We'd uh, turn around and go with the wind, and we'd be going over 400 miles an hour. Right. Because of this experience, when Nagasaki was bombed, we were called out in the middle of the night to fly to Nagasaki and take photographs of the uh, city as it burned. We flew there and arrived shortly after the plane that had dropped the bomb. This was the second atomic bomb. We had already photographed Hiroshima several days after it had been bombed. And so we were sent to Nagasaki. Uh, a bunch of uh, high-ranking uh, officers were put on our plane, a couple of our crew members were bumped off and didn't get to go along. But these officers all got a medal for this mission. And so they went along and watched the uh, were observers, theoretically. We flew over Nagasaki. I never will forget, this, the center part of the city was already charred to smithereens and the outer edges of the city was just a circle of fire and the smoke from all of this came up to we measured it we flew up to our altitude the smoke went up about 10,000 feet high wow uh, and uh, it was a heavy pall of smoke and we'd go back down then and fly at a low level, take photographs of the city. We spent a number of hours doing that. We had what they called Bombay tanks instead of bombs. Our Bombays had extra gas tanks in them so that we could stay on station there for a long period of time and photograph this. Finally, we... Uh, Got everything we were supposed to see on uh, Nagasaki. And this was really an exciting thing to see a t city that burned up. And we followed this smoke pole. The wind was carrying it towards the island of Kyushu, which is the lowest island on the Japanese mainland. And uh, it was about... 110 miles 
before that smoke kind of dissipated and, and uh, wasn't a heavy covering anymore. I remember thinking at the time, this is about the distance between St. Louis and Cape Girardeau, where I live, about 110 miles. That was the distance that this smoke was carried across Japan. After that, a uh, few days later, on the 15th of Japan, of August, that bomb was dropped on the 9th of August. We kept flying some uh, reconnaissance missions, and on the 15th, the Japanese formally, not formally, but uh, un informally, agreed to surrender. And so our planes were uh, stripped of their, a lot of their equipment, and uh, we were loaded up with, uh, we built, uh, our ground crew built uh, platforms that were the exact size of the inside of our bomb bays, and they were connected to the cables that had been used to hoist bombs up into the bomb bays, and they hoisted this platform up. The platform was uh, filled with uh, crates of food, medicine, and beer, rope tied from the ripcord of each parachute and fastened inside the Bombay of the plane. And we were given permission by the Japanese to fly to one of our prisoner of war camps in Japan, take over and uh, drop these supplies. And that they wouldn't uh, attempt to bother us. And uh, so we were assigned to fly to Osaka number two. We, f we knew where Osaka was. We had been there a number of times, but we didn't know where there was a prisoner of war camp there with our troops in it. So we flew to Osaka and for a long time, several hours flew back and forth, up and down one mountain pass, past another one, looking for this PW camp. And we were just about to, to exhausted as much gasoline as we dared to part with. And we were getting ready to uh, head back. And we were real low, so that we were below the clouds and wanted to really make sure that we were hunting. And all at once we saw this PW camp. The gates were wide open and guys were standing down there waving their arms. And we were so low that our pilot had to bank the plane and one of our wings hit one of their power lines going into the base. And then we were headed right towards the mountain and we had to pull up and get away from that. And we flew until we were back above 500 feet in the air. And then we, by that time, we knew where this base was and we turned around and we flew back towards it. And we dropped our supplies and could see guys running around, breaking open crates. We flew there a few minutes and watched that. We're so tickled with it. Tried to close our bomb bay doors and the ropes that had pulled the rip cords had wound up in the mechanism that closed the bomb bay doors and they wouldn't close. Pilot radioed the base again and asked for permission to land on a Japanese air base. 
and they came back and oh, definitely not. You'd be killed probably instantly. Uh, head back towards Guam and we'll try to follow you and get air sea rescue to pick you up. I was a tech sergeant. I was the highest ranking uh, NCO, non-commissioned officer on the plane. And so the pilot uh, called me on intercom and said, send somebody out to uh, see if they can cut into the Bombay on the catwalk, see if they can cut these ropes loose. I looked around, all the guys that were with me on the base, uh, on the plane, were looking at the floor. And there wasn't anybody that was about to volunteer. So it was, the catwalk was only about eight inches wide and circled to Bombay and there wasn't room for you to walk with a parachute. So I decided, well, I wasn't going to ask anybody else to do something I was scared to do myself. So uh, I went on, said I'd go out and do it. So I took my parachute off and uh, opened the pressurized compartment door and my plan was there's a little handhold at the top right after you stepped out of this that we always used when we were on the ground we'd grab hold of that and swing out and drop down to the ground when we landed after we had landed and my plan was to grab that and try and stay on this catwalk well one of my buddies said he'd lay on his belly and uh, hold my feet. I opened the door and reached for that handle. I got hold of it and the rush of the air past the opening, past the open Bombay, created a vacuum which pulled my feet right over the catwalk and I was hanging there by one hand in open Bombay over Japan and uh, <laughs> my buddy grabbed my feet and pulled me back to the catwalk and I got back in and uh, we figured out another way. We got uh, the ropes loose with a pole and were able to close the doors and flew back to Guam. But that was when the war was over and uh, my last, really my last mission, I guess. And the next exciting thing was September the 2nd, the Japanese formally signed the surrender treaty on the battleship Missouri. General MacArthur was uh, on the battleship to accept their surrender, and they uh, organized what they called a show of force. They wanted to show the Japanese that, that, uh, that none of them had better try any more war efforts, they had better hang with us, uh, that the war was over. And uh, we were in a th armada of a thousand B-29s that flew low over the deck of the battleship of Missouri after the signing. And the Tokyo Bay was lined with every available Allied warship that could get there. It looked like you could walk from ship to ship. They were crammed in so tight. Wow. They were just warships all over. 
and uh, we circled around out of sight while they were signing the peace treaty. And then I've read in a newspaper article later, Admiral Halsey was sitting next to General MacArthur and General MacArthur poked him with his elbow, according to what the newspaper says, was said, let him go, Bull. That was his nickname. Bull, Bull Halsey, Halsey, yeah. Yeah. And he radioed. There were a thousand carrier-based airplanes also circling in front of us, and they started their flight at 400 feet above the deck of the battleship, and then we, one at a time, flew over to 400 feet over the deck of the Missouri. I'd been over Tokyo many times before that and at 30,000 feet. Couldn't see a whole lot, but this time at 400 feet, that's just a little more than down the block. And I could see clearly everything. I could see people on the deck. The signing was over. Nobody was sitting at the table anymore. The table was still there. There were sailors uh, walking around uh, while they were there. We flew on across the battleship over the rest of Tokyo Bay and across the city of Tokyo. And looking at that from 400 feet, it was just burned to a crisp. We had bombed it with napalm, and it had just been burned out. And as I've read later, that there were more people killed in Tokyo than there were in both atomic bombs combined. So uh, it was uh, uh, over a period of time, though that was just one bomb each on the atomic bombs with Tokyo was a whole lot of planes wiping it out. But um, the, you could see a one green area, <clears throat> which we had always been told not to bomb, was the Emperor's Palace in a park-like setting, and that was still intact. And uh, we saw that and then circled around Mount Fujiyama and headed back to our base on Guam. And that was the end of World War II. Pretty incredible description. You know, thank you for sharing that. We're going to have to have you come back on to tell us more. But, you know, we're getting close to the time here. And let me ask you a couple of things, uh, Kenneth. Let me ask you, you know, what was the homecoming like? And then, you know, when you made it back to the States, you know, what every what what the feelings were. And, you know, not only of the crew, but, but of the American people. And then... Um, if you had a message, well, we'll get to that. Tell us what the homecoming was like. Well, <clears throat> there were millions of GIs coming home at the same time. And uh, everybody was happy and tickled to death to be home. Our parents and everybody that we knew were happy to have us there. <clears throat> and I don't remember anybody... <clears throat> having any of the depression or any uh, uh, syndrome uh, that they talk about nowadays that uh, fellows are bothered with. We all uh, were just glad to be back. I went to back to college on the GI Bill, uh, met my wife, uh, dated her for two years till 
she was three years younger than I was and waited until we had both graduated, got married the same day she graduated. She graduated in the morning, got married that afternoon, took off on her honeymoon. Um, I, I, uh, the, the college was filled with GIs on the GI Bill. We all had fun, drank beer together, dated girls together, double dated. Uh, had a lot of fun. When, when all that was over, then we had to get a job. <laughs> um, about two years, I graduated about two years before my wife did. By the way, she, we just celebrated our 70th anniversary uh, last May the 15th. Congratulations. That's quite a feat. I mean, not only do you, do you survive World War II and all those pretty scary, dangerous missions, but you've survived 70 years of marriage. That's yeah. probably, uh, what do you think was tougher, 70 years of marriage or, or you know, flying over Tokyo? Oh, it was Tokyo was scary, scarier. <laughs> she and I have always gotten along well together, but primarily because we both like the same things. We like to do the same things. We enjoyed, always enjoyed having a party with our friends. Uh, even when everybody had to bring their own bottle, they called it BYOB party. Oh yeah, bring your own bottle. <clears throat> um, we had a lot of fun those days. We raised two wonderful daughters. You met Becky, uh, her daughter, her sister Kimberly, who lives in Tallahassee, Florida. They're hoping to get home for Thanksgiving. Uh, <clears throat> if the virus isn't too severe at that time. And uh, we uh, really enjoyed our, our life. We uh, spent every dime we made. Uh, I, I was in uh, the newspaper business. St. Louis and Memphis papers were both morning papers and uh, we had the franchise for both of those. Our local paper was an afternoon paper, and uh, I had been a paper boy as a kid on that, but uh, the two morning papers were widely distributed, several thousand of them here in town, and uh, it was a, a good living. The only problem was I had to be up at 4 o'clock every morning and meet to train and get the news section off of it, and uh, the boys would... Uh, Made me behind our shop and put the news section together with the sports section, which came the night before by truck and to get them out on their paper routes and get them delivered. And I just hated that getting up at four o'clock every morning, two thirty on Sundays, because that was a big paper. And uh, finally, I took a tremendous cut in pay back at that time. I was making about ten or twelve thousand dollars a year, which was a terrible lot of money in 1948 and 1950, and um, uh, we were just had plenty of money. But I took a big pay cut, sold by half of the business, and uh, went to work for her dad. He owned a 
Texaco distributorship wholesale Texaco products, uh, got them by tank truck and uh, delivered them uh, by tank wagon to each one of the Texaco stations in a wide area of all the way from the river, about 30 miles west and about 30 miles north. Uh, and uh, we had three trucks that made the deliveries, finally got a transport truck of our own and did it ourselves. And uh, it was uh, a way to make a living, but I took a cut from 10 or 12,000 a year to $50 a week. <laughs> but it didn't take long till he was pleased with the work I was doing. I, his bookkeeper was retiring and I took over. I had a degree in business administration. I took over the office and uh, did very well and uh, the business prospered and I helped him uh, build uh, several more stations and finally by the time he retired we had three convenience stores and uh, we're doing well with them and uh, his my brother-in-law and I bought the business from him and uh, by the time we retired, we had uh, six convenience stores and uh, we're still delivering to several stations. And uh, we uh, uh, had earned a good living for our families at that. And uh, it was just a way to get by and we did. Boy, I enjoyed life. Well, good for you. And that's certainly one heck of a story. You know, I got a couple of questions still to go, and then, and then, uh, you know, what what do you want? You know, it's been, you know, like combat veterans have always been. There's there's kind of a negative feeling about them these days. They're running into World War Two. Yeah, see, it's a little bit different. But what what do you want people, civilians especially? What do you want them to know about veterans, and especially combat veterans? I want them to know that we risk our lives so that they can live in a free country. Freedom is something that uh, I guess everybody has his own definition of it. But we, uh, my feeling about freedom is that uh, I'm free to live my life sort of the way I want to. Want to spend my money the way I want to, to uh, go out at night when I want to, go to a restaurant when I want to, not have to answer to anybody about any of those things. And that's that, that's what freedom means to me. Uh, my wife and I spent our last nickel on our 25th anniversary taking a tour of Europe. And on our uh, 40th, we uh, had a big bash with our daughters and their families at a resort. Uh, and... Uh, Somewhere around our 60th, we uh, toured England and Scotland, Ireland, Wales. And uh, when our kids were growing up, we took them on a trip every summer to places like Williamsburg or up into Maine or west to Yellowstone, places like this. And we always came home broke, but we always enjoyed it. And uh, uh, I don't think I'd have a penny more today if we hadn't uh, enjoyed our life uh, by spending it and uh, uh, by owning part of the business, 
I had a lot of advantage. There were things that I don't guess the internal revenue would think were exactly right, but <laughs> benefits that I got from the company kind of helped ease the burden of if, if we were having a bad year, which we sometimes had when we were deep in a gas war. For instance, I had always had a company car. Got that just a year or two after I went to work for my father-in-law. All the bills were paid on it. The gas was furnished. The, any repairs, the insurance, the taxes, everything. So that was a, a, a raise of one sort. Of course, I used it on company business practically every day. Well, you know, it's kind of funny, Kenneth, because a lot of people call those loopholes. And they say, oh, you know, business owners take advantage of loopholes. But I kind of look at those as incentives to be in business that allows you to put more money back into the economy. You know, people... It's all about perception. And, you know, certainly as a business owner in America, we have those uh, we have those benefits. And and so what you just described is a benefit of business ownership. And I don't I call it a very wise use of in, of incentives that the IRS actually gives you. So, you know, you did well with it and you were smart to be able to use those. So, yeah, that's all good stuff. You know, we were investigated by the IRS a couple of times over the 50 odd years that I was involved in this. And, uh, uh, one time we, uh, didn't have a fine, but we had to, uh, change, uh, the way we, uh, we, we sold a lot of gas to farmers. We furnished them a tank to set up out in their barn lot and, they uh, filled their tractor with that. And of course, all of them, their car also. And uh, uh, they, uh, uh, the way they uh, operated this, I had to run to those farmers frequently uh, to try and collect. They always uh, let their bill run until you just ding dong them for it. And uh, they, uh, uh, there was always some to charge off at the end of the year. And we had to change the way we charged off. We were, uh, if a farmer hadn't paid anything on his bill for six months, we deducted it from our income tax. And I remember the first time that this came up, the revenue agent that called on us had happened to work in one of our stations and knew my father-in-law real well. And he had worked there as a kid in high school. And uh, he said, oh, Stokie, you can't take that off. I know that guy. He'll pay you whenever he can. <laughs> yeah. So we changed that and uh, gave him a year of <laughs> of a bad time before we charged them all. And that was the only thing. But the, another time, uh, he was concerned about our company cars. My brother-in-law uh, had a company car also. And I told him, uh, uh, he seldom ever brought it to work. I told him, I said, now that guy's going to be here tomorrow. I believe you ought to bring that and put it in the parking lot behind our office so that he'll see it's a company car parked there. 
You know, that was the first thing he checked on. I want to see those two company cars. That's and there they were parked side by side. And uh, he said, okay. Uh, he said, tell, tell me where you've been the last. Uh, I said, well, yesterday I went to Perryville. It's about a 30-mile drive. I said, we've got two stations up there that I have to supervise. He said, well, okay. He said, I understand that. He said, I, th I think that's all right. So the next thing he said, I want to see your petty cash book. Well, for years we had kind of used our petty cash sort of however we wanted to. And about a year or two before, hmm. I had gotten a little old book from the bank that they gave out that they wrote your deposit in every time you made a deposit. And I told my secretary, I said, you know, uh, he said, I said, you watch the girls now. Anytime that they pay anything out of petty cash, write it in that book. Because that thing might come back to haunt us. Sure enough, he looked at that book. And here was this little dollar and a half for cleaning supplies or uh, things of that sort. Uh, petty cash and then a check written for the full amount at the end of a period. And he said, well, I believe you're all okay on that. He said, I, I can't find a thing wrong. And we got a clean bill of health. Magic. You know, that's good. That's good news, you know, especially coming from the IRS. You know, we're getting ready to close out here, Kenneth. You know, it's been a great conversation. Let me ask you this. Do you live by a certain saying every day? Is there advice that you can give to anybody how to approach the day? Like, how do you approach your days? What has gotten you through the most? We're religious, we belong to the Lutheran Church, and uh, wife and I haven't been able to go to church for a while. I've been in the hospital three times this year, and I've got uh, cancer on top of my head, and don't know what time we'll have left, but uh, uh, I, I approach everybody every day from a moral standpoint. I feel like that I might have to answer for how I've lived my life. I've tried to be honest with everybody all through my life. Uh, my parents raised me that way. My wife was raised that way. And we've raised our daughters that way. Try not to cheat anybody. We don't run anybody down if we can keep from it. We try to be a friend to anybody that wants to be a friend. We just... Uh, Try to be uh, uh, nice people, and I guess that's it. Well, that's about the best advice that anybody can give. I just, you know, for those who are listening, we're, we're talking to World War II veteran Kenneth Bender, who served our country in World War II and, and, and fought over the skies of Tokyo and over the Pacific and who made it back and raised his family. And, you know, he's one of you know, what we call the greatest generation. And I can just say that I'm uh, very humbled and very uh, honored to have you on our show. Ken, as the uh, the second World War II veteran that's been able to relate his story, and uh, it's because of uh, the sacrifices made by the, uh, the American public and by the men and women who wore the uniform that the world is, is not different than it is right now. And not many can argue that the United States of America is probably the greatest country that's ever been. And, and I can only say that I can only offer you gratitude and thank you 
for not only the service that you did, but also to your family who supported you and and to your daughters and to everybody else that 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 you know that raised their hands when we needed you the most. And uh, just thanks for being on my radio show. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. And and uh, I wish you Godspeed in, in uh, your bout with cancer. I know that God's got you in His arms. And uh, just thank you very much, Ken, for being here. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. 